Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Boundary of Disaster, and we're back with our motor racing podcast. I'm Matt Bone, and with me, as always, is Matt Willis. Hello, Matt. Hello. And we've got a special guest, a returning guest, our very first guest. Hello, Hazel Southwell. Great to have you back. Yes, it's uh, nice to be back. Super. Ellie may join us at some point. She's babysitting, um, so... She's very annoyed that we're doing this early in the afternoon before her brother's gone to bed, but that's another story. And Adam sends his best regards, but he's also parenting. So that's his own fault, really, for having kids late in life. Uh, we're going to be reviewing Monza, um, and there's quite a bit to review. But the first news of the day, I'm going to go to Matt with this first, was the news about Alex Albon. Yeah, um, kind of big scary announcement really that, that he was it sounds like he was he was in he was really quite seriously ill sort of briefly with the appendicitis uh that was the reason that he had to to hand over his car to uh nick de Vries. but um yeah that that's quite serious respiratory problems and and you know was in was in hospital and had to be intubated and and uh you know it sounds like he's he got through that fine and is kind of recovering now, but it's it's kind of scary to hear about something like that happening to a to a driver, you know, or anyone really in uh, you know this day and age. It is, and of course, Hazel, the next one, Singapore, which is massively physical to the drivers, and it's only two weeks away. Yeah, I mean, I would have thought so. Appendix surgery, although appendicitis is very serious if if you provided they they got his appendix out before it burst um he should be he should be pretty fit and well fairly soon after um whether i mean i I don't know how many times there's been a formula one driver that had an appendix removed mid-season in the past uh i would have thought i mean i i can't think of any in the last sort of like 20 years or so but maybe i'm just mess remembering um and i would have thought that it, there is sort of a a risk given the extreme stress on their bodies around their kind of midsection because you sort of end up kind of being semi disemboweled around every corner um so yeah i don't uh, i think everyone would love to see alex back for singapore and and for him to be completely well but i i don't know if that's reasonable purely because I don't understand the, the, the full, I mean, I'm not a doctor and I'm not a um, formula one trainer. Um, uh, so I, I don't understand what the full physiological effects would be. We, we obviously have seen drivers uh, race when they're like not 100% um, like Pierre Gasly this weekend, in fact, or, or last weekend. Um, but I don't, I don't know if Singapore would necessarily be a brilliant idea um and it, partly because it's very physical also because it's very hot and sweaty so which isn't ideal if you for instance still have stitches or something um so yeah it's really unfortunate for Alex and and especially that he then subsequently had the um post uh, anesthesia reaction um and and had to spend the night in in intensive care and of course uh, we're all very glad that that he seems to be well on the way to recovery from that and and William's announcement said that he would be going home tomorrow um but yeah all a all a very difficult weekend for him really mm. but it did give an opportunity to one of your old boys didn't it hazel with a mm. formula e champ walking walking from one end of the pit to the other and and jumping in alex's car nick de vries Yes, uh, rather than a Williams driver uh, finding themselves in a Mercedes as um, hmm. uh, with George's substitution for Lewis, a Mercedes driver found himself driving a Williams, um, uh, which has thrown up all kinds of statistical anomalies, uh, like the last time that a driver drove for two different teams over a weekend um, uh, because he did uh, first practice for Aston Martin. Um, and then only subsequently on the on the Saturday morning got told that he, he needed to drive the Williams. Um, Nick, of course, is a very well-experienced driver. Um, he, he's been working with Mercedes for, uh, for 
two years now um, in the, uh, no, three years now even, um, in the Formula E programme. And he uh, was previously attached to McLaren. Um, he has done more testing than, than a lot of drivers who might sort of drop in suddenly. Um, and uh, yeah, he, he has obviously spent quite a lot of time in the Mercedes simulator and working with the F1 team and things like that. And, and had driven the Williams previously. I'm saying all that just because I don't think we should uh, sort of use Nick DeVries as like an example of what a driver should be able to do the first time they step into a car as though he doesn't have all those uh, kind of um, preparations for it. Uh, but yeah, he, he did a really impressive weekend, I think, especially given he was in a lot of discomfort. He didn't have particularly good seat fit, etc., I mean, it's, it feels to me like nobody is that well prepared to just jump into a Formula One car during a weekend, during a race weekend these days. But he was about as well prepared as, as anyone could possibly be, which, again, is not to take away from the fact that he did an amazing job. And that it's very, it'd be very difficult for anyone to equal that kind of thing. When you think of previous Williams stand-ins like um, Jack Aitken and... Um, the Scottish driver whose name I have Deresta. temporarily, Deresta, Paul Deresta, um, you know, uh, both of whom yeah. did a decent solid job when they got into the car at short, short notice. Um, but, you know, weren't, um, you know, they still, they weren't on the level of a, a regular race driver, which no. Nick DeVries kind of instantly was, which I thought was massively impressive, actually. I mean, we all know how good he is, but, mm. you know, the fact that he could, kind of do that with there were a few little mistakes but nothing you you know nothing nothing huge um and um that he just he just did an immense job i thought um just to be able to put that car where he did in both qualifying and the race um especially during quite a tactically complicated race in terms mm. of you know there was a lot of um tire management there was a lot of uh, pit stop management it wasn't a straightforward race um it wasn't you know it certainly wasn't a parade uh in the sense that the, there was quite a lot of movement particularly in the top 10 and of course with cars coming through from the back that that were kind of out of position um yeah i think i mean we know that the formula e driver field is actually incredibly strong and and potentially stronger than than the Formula One one a lot of the time, um, particularly at the pointy end. I think that it was quite validating probably for quite a lot of Formula E drivers mm. to to say, look, you know, this is the guy that came ninth in our series <laughs> this year. Um, although he did win it the previous year, of course, he was the first world champion. So, um, yeah, I think I think a really, really impressive uh, debut from Nick and and all the things I said before I, I I wasn't trying to take away from from Nick himself um but but more sort of apply a bit of caution that if say Felipe Drogovic gets the tap then he might not be as well prepared as Debris mm. um and we probably can't expect the same thing but yeah it's an important think, context oh, sorry Matt go on no I'm just gonna say my, my favorite Nick Debris moment was FP3 on his first push lap and he just sort of drifted off of the parabolica straight into the gravel. You knew he was not he was not going to back out on his first push lap and he sort of realized okay well we won't be doing that next time around. Off you, off you go back. Yeah. No, I was just going to say it's it's um Hazel was providing really important context which um you know is the the difference between a, a really quite experienced uh race driver at the top level like Nick um, and the difference between putting it someone out straight out of formula two uh, into the car. And I think, um, you know, like I said, I don't think, I don't think we can count anyone as being especially well prepared these days in the way that back in the nineties, you, you had test drivers who would have had thousands of miles of, of F1 running under their, um, under their belt before they might get a call up in a situation like that. So it's kind of, um, it's, it's different to how it used to be, but, uh, yeah, no, he did a good job. Um, but I think the physical, um, toll that it took, that the race took on him, I thought that was really interesting as well. And what Hazel, was it you who mentioned that you, you thought that was likely to be more down to porpoising than, I, um, I, I think it's the... probably down to seat fit and to the car not really being, right. um, designed for him. I mean, F1 is, is massively, massively physical. 
Um, and that's not, you know, it, it is the most physical motorsport. Um, the races are longer than than any other single seater series. Um, oh, I'm probably going to get smacked on the wrist for that. But any other FIA <laughs> single seater series, um, and they're physically very, very intense. The cornering <laughs> speeds are the highest that you get on kind of like conventional non-oval circuits. F1 is very, very physical. Um, it surprised me a little bit because Formula E is also very physical. So Formula E is physical in a very different way. It's not got the same G-forces, but it does shake you around a huge amount. Um, and it also, there is no power steering on a Formula E car, which with the driver weighs the best part of a ton. Um, and they don't turn willingly. So like you're basically driving a kind of like flip-flop on roller skates um, between very close concrete walls with other cars hitting you and, and the steering gets bent very easily at which point it's even heavier to turn and stuff. Um, so, uh, and the corners are relentless because the tracks are so small. So um, like in London, the drivers were saying it was sort of like 800 times you had to turn the car over a race, which if you think about that over 45 minutes, that's quite a lot. Um, and and it's also very hot and the car doesn't get any lighter um, over the race because it doesn't burn off any fuel and, and the tyres just get worse and worse and worse over the course of it. So, and in fact, the car overall gets worse because it can brake less well and stuff as as the um, battery and the motor begin to overheat if if it's a hot race. So I was a little bit surprised by how wiped out he was, specifically that he said it was his shoulders. Um, like if he'd said it was his neck and, and that he couldn't, you know, move his head or or something or that he was just or that his back hurt or something, something like that, then then I was quite surprised just because Formula One cars do have power steering. So in theory, it would actually be a much like, and they are lighter cars. So, and you do get more breaks between corners, even though the corners are, are kind of bigger um, or something like the, the Lesmos is obviously like a, a longer corner, cornering experience than you generally get in an FE track. Um, but, yeah, I I think given the massive height difference between him and Alex, Alex is like six two and Nick is sort of five three, maybe a bit more than that. He's probably not going to love me saying that, but whatever. Um, uh, so uh, yeah, nearly a foot of height difference between them. So and given the incredibly short notice, they won't have been able to make many adjustments. So I think he was probably in a really uncomfortable position, and yeah, probably. Uh, you know, going around it, we've, or we've seen other drivers like um, Lando in Austria in 2020 in the second race was in massive amounts of pain uh, just because his seat wasn't properly fitted and so he's getting bruised very badly. I do always forget how tall Alex is. In, in my head, racing drivers are small, but you know him. You see him and George, and you see George on the podium as well. And on mm. second place or third, he's as tall as the guys next to it. And that's such a massive point that I didn't twig because it was him being helped out of the car at the end of the race, which yeah, you know, we were saying in the group chat he wouldn't he wouldn't pass the escape test in that because yeah. he, he just couldn't he just couldn't lift himself out, which which was a worry. Um, Although that said, generally, like I've seen drivers who were pretty dead on their feet getting themselves out if they need to because the adrenaline spikes and, and kind of yeah. you just suddenly move if the car's on fire. Self-preservation is a wonderful thing. But there mm. we go. Yeah. yeah, I imagine that would have that would have kicked in had he really needed to. But um, yeah, um, it, it's, it, was, it was interesting. I suppose, you know, Monza is a particular... It's more fast corners, um, longish fast corners... Um, quite unusual on the circuit for for, for that kind of thing, but um, mm, I don't know. I mean, right. And then there's the you know you've got the humidity and so on. It's in Singapore, which is is going to be physically tough. So anyway, sorry. No, no. I'm just thinking, I was going to say the same thing. You know, Sing- Singapore is not going to be a fun place. Just coming out of an op and a respiratory problem, or jumping into your second race in a in a Grand Prix car. Um, mm. I, I love Singapore. It's one of my favorite places in the world. But you are literally breathing water. It is so humid the, the whole time you're there. And that's just walking around, not driving a you know, 800 kilo Formula One car. 
Nick um, Nick did Jakarta though this year, so he actually might hmm. be one of the better prepared drivers. <laughs> um, which uh, Jakarta was so hot, like so unbearably hot. I mean, the drivers really were struggling. Um, Degrassi lost six kilograms of water in forty-five minutes and a lap. So <laughs> think about how bad that is. Yeah. There's a joke about losing that weight that quickly, but we won't go there because we need to get to the main thing we need to talk about, which is the end of the race. I was watching it thinking I can't complain about Max Verstappen anymore because he's being a champion this year. He's got a fast car and he's not losing races and even being as far down the grid as he was, that was an incredible drive. But the safety car at the end, a few laps from the end, Danny Ricardo's McLaren did the did the decent thing and stopped, um, which is probably the best thing that can be said for that car this year. It was locked in gear just in between Lesmo 1 and 2, which took a long time for them to call the safety car. And when they finally did, basically all hell broke loose, not only at the track, but on Twitter, because we all knew what was going to happen. There wasn't enough laps to go through it. But... The safety car picked up the wrong car. It picked up George instead of Max. Big, big, huge, silly thing. But there was something that I think we all picked up on. And that was something that scared the bejesus out of me when I saw it. Hazel, what was it? Well, this also scared the bejesus out of me. Um, And was a horrible flashback to to earlier this year in Deria. which probably for debris as well, actually, um, uh, which is that we had, because of where Daniel Ricciardo's car was, it's quite a narrow bit of the trap. Um, it was on a straight and there was quite a long uh, removal process that required a cherry picker, a forklift, uh, a recovery vehicle um, to come right onto the track and to pick up the car and then to reverse really quite a long way down a straight back to where it could exit the track again. Um, The idea was that the safety car meant that all the cars would bunch up and then there'd be periods where the cherry picker could move um, when there were no cars next to it. But that wasn't the case, partly because cars were allowed to unlap themselves. Um, So, of course, they were kind of out of rhythm, which probably shouldn't have happened. That is something that could have been controlled. Um, And... Also, it just, it was very, very close to them. They were having to sort of weave round it. And on such a narrow piece of track, it only takes dipping a, a cold tyre, especially given drivers were, were, some of them were on quite ragged tyres by that point, and cold brakes. And you have a F1 car hitting either a dangling F1 car or the tractor. Other F1 cars, by and large, are designed to be crashed into by F1 cars. That's part of the safety standards that um, are put in because there's an assumption that that is a risk. Circuits are made to be crashed into by cars because there's an assumption that that is a risk. Tractors are not made for that. Um, they're, they're big vehicles, they're very heavy, and if a F1 car meets that vehicle, it's going to come off substantially the worse. Um, and of course... Everyone remembers Suzuka 2014 when uh, Jules Bianchi's car went off at high speeds in the wet and a long way through runoff before going underneath a recovery vehicle. There wasn't a halo then. Um, There wasn't the virtual safety car then, which was why he was still going at a relatively high pace compared to how fast cars were going past this recovery vehicle in Monza. But I don't think any, I don't think it's okay or comfortable or acceptable to have cars so close on track that they're having to manoeuvre around a recovery vehicle um, and where the alternative is running onto grass. If there'd, if there'd been kind of like tarmac runoff there, where they could actually sort of like fully evade it and, and be quite a few metres away, then I think that would be slightly different. And it certainly wasn't as bad as Diria, where you had a car literally dangling over drivers' heads. Um, as they passed a vehicle, but it, uh, yeah, I'm sure there were quite a few people with their hearts in their mouths looking at that and and wondering 
what was going on. Um, the race director was Eduardo Freitas this uh, this race, um, and I think yeah, he comes comes from different racing, non single seater uh, race direction, and that doesn't mean that he's unsuitable for the job. He seems very competent, um, but the sometimes the tracks and considerations are different um when you're talking about enclosed cars not open cockpit and open wheel because as soon as you have wheels that can brush onto things and and onto other cars or onto a recovery vehicle then you you've also got a different situation Matt, yeah sorry my dog's going crazy next door (laughs) you said nikolai was going to behave himself today i did i did i vouched for him and i was wrong um, it's not the first time get used to it uh yeah no i think it feels to me like yeah it was a complex situation it was a it was an evolving situation so you had the situation with yeah there's a car on the track um and then they struggled to get it into neutral and then it got to the point where okay they couldn't push it so then we had to have the tractor on on track it feels to me like it should be a fairly straightforward situation where if you have a vehicle that's on the actual track, not just on circuit, but, but, you know, it, it has part of its, um, part, you know, it has its wheels on the same bit of racing tarmac that the race cars are driving on, then that should be a red flag. I don't know. Maybe that's, maybe that's over the top, but I think part of the problem with formula one and the rules that we've had over the last, however long, and whether it's rules about, uh, you know, um, grid penalties or safety car is that they can get too complex and too kind of, you know, you have this, that, and the other qualification for something. And it feels like what we need for situations like this is something really quite straightforward where recovery vehicle on track, red flag. And then yeah. you don't get any of those circumstances. You don't have to worry about whether it's grass or runoff or tarmac runoff. You don't have to worry about you know is have the cars has the safety car picked up the car so there's a, a period of time in which the, the the tractor can move or or can't move and benefit of hindsight you know you have this pressure for i think which is a different issue with people saying they should have red flagged it so we could have had however many racing laps at the end and I think that is very much a secondary issue and should, should not be considered amongst the safety stuff. But there were some real safety issues. And yeah, they were improved by the measures that were, were put in after Jules, as, as, as Hazel pointed out, but they didn't resolve them completely. And I think we need to resolve those things completely. Yeah, and, and I think that's a really good point that, um, you know, regardless of whether you think it should have finished behind a green flag, that's irrelevant. Um it, like the important thing, because to be honest, I mean, races have ended behind safety car before. Le Mans has ended behind safety car before. Um, and, you know, it is what it is. So I have much less of a problem with that. And mm. I actually think it would have been also been fine to have done what they did with Formula 3 and just go like, okay, we're abandoning it. Because um, yeah. that's the thing. That's what happened, was it the day before? And there, uh, That morning. It was that morning, yeah. So th- there was one hates to use precedent, but they're, I assume it's the same race directors for all the FIA. Events no, there's the actually, there's actually a separate race director for the junior series. Oh, right. Okay. So anyways, they, they made their call. Maybe that then given the criticisms that there was for that, cause that has led to some interesting comments. The, I think we've, we've all seen that little video that's doing the rounds Aligned with, I think it's our friend Nick DeVries again warming his tires up coming out of Lesmo and has to swerve back in to, to miss the tractor. If memory serves as well, didn't Michael Massey stop a race last year because there was a tractor on, there was a recovery field? Was that the Saudi race? I think it was actually, um, oh, it could have been, uh, I think, um, yes, in, I think uh, there were two instances in 2020. One of which was Sal was the first Saudi race twenty twenty, no twenty twenty one. No, you're right. So yes, there was one in Saudi last year, and there was also one in um, or there was a, a controversial tractor incident in Turkey. I think in mm-hmm. 
2020 where the race went back to green flag running and the recovery vehicle was a long way away it wasn't like this one um because I, th- I think we also need to make a distinction between like a recovery vehicle on the track and a recovery vehicle that is miles into runoff and therefore if if it's decent weather conditions and you're going safety car speed there should be very little risk um but yes uh i, I mean this one really was in the way of the drivers and and they clearly didn't because it was also moving every time they circulated. So the incident with De Vries was trying to warm his tyres and then had to brake very suddenly because he saw the recovery vehicle, um, which nearly led to, like, Guan Yu Zhou then had to, or or Zhou Guan Yu, um, then had to uh, make an invasive manoeuvre, basically, um, at which point you've got a chain of drivers having to make manoeuvres behind and and because they're mandated to stay fairly close to each other behind the safety car unless they're unlapping themselves um and you know it only takes a small amount to have like a terrible pile up um when when drivers are having to make sudden and erratic moves on track behind a safety car um because there's there's something in their way and it's going backwards against the flow of traffic yeah which yeah it they, they, oh, it's it's making me slightly queasy just thinking about it because it's it's one of those things that yeah I very very briefly met Jules Bianchi and when I see stuff like that I just see that lovely young lad coming over to say I was chatting to Derek Bell he came over to say goodbye to Derek and I congratulated him on his point at Monaco and he stood and chatted for a minute and then jumped in the car and, and was gone and he was just a really lovely young man going around signing everything that was being put in front of him, selfies, the whole, the whole lot. He was loving life. And that's the image I have in my head whenever I see a, you know, a yeah. tractor with a formula one car dangling from it, going backwards up a live Grand Prix circuit and the fastest Grand Prix circuit that, that we go to. Yeah. And I, I think it's, it's very, I mean, a lot of the drivers that that are in Formula E, um, Sam Bird and 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 Jev particularly, um, were very close to Joel Bianchi, and and you know, it's something that has affected the way that they react to um, incidents like Deria, and I I think it's very. There've been some really questionable safety car moments, um, particularly in the support series recently. Uh, there was one in Jeddah this year where they were weaving between two cars that were being retrieved, and although they were going very, very slowly, it wasn't. Didn't, it didn't one hundred percent feel okay. Um, with the support series, there's a sort of pressure not to red flag a race if possible although it does happen actually relatively often, and there were red flags in both the the Formula 3 and Formula 2 this weekend. Um, But just because it's a support series, there do tend to be more crashes in junior series um, as part of the driver's learning. Um, uh, But, yeah, there's a reluctance to red flag because it means that the race extends, and that has an impact on the schedule. And you might end up with a situation like we had in F3, where the final three laps were not run, um, which is a bit sad, given it was the final F3 race of the year. Um, and of course, you know, that could have those three laps could have led to moves that would have ultimately affected the order of the way that the title played out. I think Oliver Behrman in particular felt quite cheated um, because he... he could have potentially taken the lead at which point he would have been second not third in the in the title um but it it does in formula one that pressure isn't there you can keep going and it wasn't that it was a particularly late race that there was a particular delay and although yes a three lap sprint would have been kind of ridiculous (laughs) at the end I actually think a lot of people might have thought it was quite fun um and certainly more fun than watching cars get anywhere near a tractor um which it's neither motor racing nor safe so there's there's not really anything to love about that mm. we're 
We're seeing a lot of hangover from Abu Dhabi last year, aren't we? There's a lot of decisions that are being made in the lens of how how it will play out. So it seems, um, I think it's the general consensus. And that, yeah, let them race philosophy is is tempered now by following the rules to the letter, which is why we're seeing all that silly silliness with jewelry and, and, and the like. Um, but it shouldn't take away from an incredible drive by Max. And we're not the most vocal Red Bull or his fans around on this podcast, but it was, it was, it was faultless. Yeah. It was carved, carved his way to the front and never looked back. And to be fair to Ferrari, I don't think they could have done any more than they did. You know, we jokingly try to guess which lap they're going to screw everything up on um, before every Grand Prix. But this time they, yeah, they just didn't have, didn't have the pace. They tried different things on strategy um, and it didn't work. It was, it's Red Bull's year and they're making the most of it. Fair play to them. Hmm. Yeah. Um, it, it galls me, but you know, it's, it, I think if Lewis had done that performance, we'd have been singing his praises. So, you know, fair enough that, uh, that, that we do that for Max. I think, you know, and Red Bull, they've really hit the, um, the right notes with the car this year. The only sort of downside to that being that Checo really doesn't seem to, to have, he sort of briefly got his head around it and then they kind of evolved it some more and it went away from him again. Um, which is a shame to see for Checo, but um, that's it seems to be the anyone who's in their non-max seat at Red Bull is is they're more likely to struggle than not. Um, and you know, Max is just he is driving faultlessly. He's not pulling some of the moves that we saw last year, um, and you know, and throughout his whole F1 career, to be honest, largely because he doesn't need to, possibly because the cars are a bit easier to race. Um, but yeah, I mean, he's, he's, he's not really putting a foot wrong this year and you've got to hand it to him. Yeah. I think, you know, if, if last year he scrapped a title or scrapped his way to a title that, that obviously, you know, it's unfortunate for Max as, as well as it's unfortunate for Lewis and the sport overall, um, we'll always have a bit of a question mark over it. I don't think there is any possible question that could be asked about this year. Um, he's, uh, not making mistakes. He's very dominant. The car is very uh, is clearly the fastest car most weekends, and even when it's not, they're finding ways to to make that work. Um, you know, over one lap, the Ferrari did seem overall to be faster, especially given that Science and Leclerc's final qualifying laps uh, were actually without a toe because they ended up out of order with each other, and, and they had Norris between them. Um, and uh, yeah, you know, the, the Ferrari is clearly not rubbish. It's unreliable. And so to some extent are the team um, and to some extent the drivers. Um, uh, but it is a strong car and, and Red Bull are not walking this. Um, however, they are making it look very relatively easy um, to wrap up the title by Singapore because, you know, Max is on top of his game. The Red Bull strategy is on top of their game. Um, they're not having to necessarily push things particularly hard. They're not really suffering reliability issues. Um, they're not making big mistakes and they're not having disasters, um, which given the start of the season, actually, like mm. if you think back to Bahrain and um, Australia, Red Bull weren't looking particularly great. They were looking really scruffy. They were looking like a team that finished 2021 quite, you know, focused on that and had kind of like stumbled back into the office going, what, sorry? Um, uh, like a new car? Um, uh, but it's clearly something that has they have worked on and they have addressed. And, and you know, Max still looked very fast at the start of the season, but but the car was not looking tip top. Um, it was looking pretty, uh, pretty much like Ferrari were going to walk it instead. Mm. Um, so yeah, the, before their um, problems started. Uh, so maybe Red Bull did it the right way round and got their, their 
issues out early rather than letting them turn up mid-season to create incredible problems. Um, but yeah, they, if Max takes the title in Singapore and there's every chance he will, uh, it's completely on merit. And, and it's because he's really outdriven every other driver um, and Red Bull have out-delivered every other team in, in terms of not just their car, but the way that they've operated as a team um, and the way that they've been able to manage when they have issues, where they have setbacks, um, where they do have things like grid penalties and and simply, you know, um, Hannah Schmitz is clearly a, a top-rate uh, strategist in terms of they just don't make the wrong calls. Apart from on Checo's car. Yeah, poor, 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 well, poor you know, you throw them all on Checo's car, and that's 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 another way to win a championship. You know, it, it's you know, kind of. You look at a lot of the cases in the past, like you know, back to two thousand and nine with with Braun, and and for certainly for the first half of the season, all the all the issues happened on Rubens' car, and mm. but and that helped give Jensen the championship. So it's like, well, you know, it's like Ferrari kind of like one week. One week it's Leclerc's car, and another week it's Sainz's car, and it's like, well, that's another way. If, if they manage to get everything right just for one of them, then they might be giving more competition. You know, I'm not suggesting that as a strategy, yeah. but it's like, it's a, um, you know, it's 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 something that can mitigate. You, you don't you don't win a world championship unless you've got luck on your side, and you know, you think of the the year. Uh, uh, Rosberg won his his title. All the all the engine failures, all the bad luck was on Lewis's car. Um, you know, this year, Max is after those really weird couple races when his engine just stopped. It's mm. it's it's either been bulletproof or he's managed the car to the end in a way that is is quick enough. And I think the thing that comes up really well is something that you said last time you were on Hazel about McLaren not being a winning team it's mm. that winning mentality of what to do in a race that Ferrari is still figuring out because they've not been in this position for a while yeah and I think I think actually Ferrari um <laughs> Ferrari is interested so I used to be really anti-Ferrari but actually I've sort of come around on them um, because they're because I didn't love the dominance at the start of uh, uh, or at the turn of the millennium, um, but these days they're sort of interesting because they're they're like a a high performing child who has a breakdown, um, <laughs> which you know relatable. Um, they're like and now it's become a dysfunctional adult because um, the, they're obviously under immense pressure. There is an expectation that as Ferrari will behave like Ferrari. Um, the turbo hybrid era has, as a whole, has not been Ferrari's era, although maybe 2017 they had the fastest car. Um, and it's it's not it's not really come together for them tactically. It's not come together for them in terms of... Um, in terms of, you know, what what they seem to make in terms of choices to do with the car, um, the power unit that they've developed is probably the most powerful power unit in terms of horsepower, uh, you know, and we've seen that, that being a Ferrari-powered team is, to some extent, an advantage this year. So Haas and, and Alfa Romeo have, have made big steps along with um, the lead team, whereas they were suffering with the fact that they had one of the worst power units previously. Um, but it's completely unreliable. Um, and, you know, they probably have the strongest driver pairing bar Jordan Lewis. Um, and yet, they, you know, they're being, I mean, the the idea that they can even slightly challenge. I mean, it looks like Mercedes might take them for second in the constructors, um, which, given the Mercedes is really not a good car this year, uh, is is pretty. That's not ideal for Ferrari, um, and I can't help thinking that this is going to be the kind of thing which I don't think that Mattia Binotto is the problem. Um, I think there's lots of odd things about Ferrari. Um, at the moment, 
not necessarily that that are Bonotto related because you know people say oh they don't know how to make a strategy call they speak to the drivers they ask the drivers to do their race strategy mid-race that's not quite the case it's often that they're communicating you know these are the options how do you feel about it and and that is a fair thing to ask a driver um and probably something that the drivers would prefer given you know previously when when we were in the um Arriva Bene era um and um say Vettel a lot of the time would be vehemently disagreeing with the strategists and and for instance refusing to pit um because he wasn't being given that information he wasn't being allowed to to kind of make those choices so um, or, or to respond in any way. Um, so I actually think the fact that the Ferrari pit wall is now communicating with its drivers isn't necessarily a symptom of anything bad. Um, especially, I mean, if you think back to, say, like 2020, where the drivers would say something and you'd just get, we're checking. <laughs> and then, of course, we don't hear all their radio all the time. But even so, it, it seemed like a strange response to, for instance, my car has completely stopped. <laughs> um uh, as it was with with Leclerc in Barcelona yeah um so i don't i don't think that ferrari is necessarily in like a worse shape than it's been for to be honest since 2014 i think it's probably in about the best shape it probably has been um in terms of tactics and the car and what they're doing but yeah it, the, the McLaren comparison is is right. <laughs> McLaren have also been a very dominant team at points. They haven't been for a while, and they don't know how to do it um, when when the opportunity kind of comes up. And yeah, uh, I think Ferrari Ferrari have got quite used to scrapping for a podium, but not necessarily for for you know the and. It, it sounds silly because it's like, well, how is scrapping for a podium any different from winning? And it's like, well, actually, the position that you run in, and, and you do see teams fall into this, like teams fall into being midfield because it's how they know how to be. Um, and teams will, you know, I think Mercedes is having its own problems because it's not winning at the moment um, and it's not quite sure how to cope with that. Um so, yeah, the the ways that F1 teams work and, and the just the internal procedures of how you have to manage between scrapping for a tiny chance and actually being able to sort of presume dominance are, are very, very different. Sorry, I went on for ages there. No, no, it's a great, great point. Um, and I think it sort of makes me think of, I mean, two, two things. I think one thing is that from kind of from either side, Mercedes and Red Bull are showing just how difficult it is to get everything firing on all cylinders um, and showing the, the areas where Ferrari is, yeah, they might have a really fast car, but there's all these other areas that, that, um, that Ferrari still need to become a top team at for them to, to truly become a top team. And, you know, that, that whole thing about knowing how to win and and your natural situation being in the midfield, like when, when Williams had that kind of little run in, in sort of at the beginning of the hybrid era in 2014 and 15, when at times they had the fastest car um, or, you know, very nearly the fastest car um, just on certain on certain circuits. And when you looked at how then the team handled having that fastest car, or a car that was fast enough to win. And they kind of fumbled it. And there were races when, you know, like that, that Silverstone one where they, they had won two on the grid and then there was a little bit of rain later on and they didn't even get one car on the podium and things like that. And, you know, that's bad luck and the car wasn't suited to it and stuff. But, you know, alternatively, you could just tell they were absolutely bricking it in terms of the strategy and, and uh, you know, stuff like that. So it's kind of, it is all these kind of, Teams kind of have their natural home, and breaking out of that is really difficult. Uh, and you know, one way falling back and falling forwards—it's it's really interesting. It, I, I think I think it was Mark Hughes said the other week that they've done the hard stuff. They've got a quick car, they've got a good engine, they've got two great drivers. Now it's the soft stuff that they have to figure out, which can take some time. And it was interesting. I was watching the um, 
the Mercedes debrief um, thing with, I think, Schoff, I think it was this week. And they were talking about the answer of why they left Lewis out. And he said something interesting that they, they could have protected second and third by pitting both the cars. But they wanted track position for the chance to win. And they went, he even admitted that probably wasn't the right thing to do. And But that's the mentality of them having a very fast car that can defend in that position. And I think it's the sort of in, inverse that Ferrari have of getting used to being in that top position. And I just thought that was a really interesting thing that they can mm. consolidate podiums. They still have a winning mentality when perhaps they should be thinking about taking the points because um, they, they walked away with third and fifth instead of second and third. So it's... It was an interesting call. It was. Um, and I I mean, I think that, but also it showed that, that maybe they're not used to go to having to go all in. Because I think if they'd have actually kept both cars out and left George to try and defend and maybe, you know, maybe hold Max up for a bit, maybe get him to mess his tyres up, just kind of throw another option into the mix. Um but then possibly lose both cars off the podium. I don't think they were used to having to do that either. And then maybe you had the situation where there were a couple of times last year when uh, Valtteri was in the position of maybe on slightly older tyres, having to, being ahead of Max, and Max is coming through and he's going to challenge Lewis, and Valtteri has the job of trying to maybe hold him up a bit, just enough to be significant, and Valtteri completely blows it. And whether that's the whether that's kind of that, whether that's sort of fed into their thinking a little bit with, oh, well, there's no point keeping George there because, you know, we know that he won't be able to keep him back for one corner, let alone, you know, a couple of laps. Maybe I'm being a bit unfair both on Valtteri and the team there, but it feels like if they wanted to go for the win, they had to go all in. Um, whereas if they wanted to protect two podiums, then they, they could have gone all in on that, but it was hedging their bets and they ended up, yeah, they still got one podium, which is great. You know, given where their car is, it's still good. But there was something in the team that they're used to being able to protect two good results. Um, mm. One of which is a win rather than well, we throw everything at the vague possibility of a win, which kind of feels like something that McLaren might do if that's, you know, if that makes any sense, but, but it's a hell of a gamble. And they weren't used to making that kind of gamble. It's going to be interesting at the end of the year because they're only 30-odd points behind Ferrari for second at the moment. And maybe those calls will, will cost. It, no, we'll, we'll see. I think it will be really interesting. So the end of the year, the thing that Mercedes has that Ferrari do not have is that both cars tend to finish in the points. Um, mm. And both cars tend to finish Um and and even when they're having like a rubbish one, and so they come seventh and eighth somehow. Um, well, in fact, that never happens because George is only finishing in the top five. Um, but you know, if if they have a relatively downbeat one, then then things, you know, it it might not always be that they're even the third fastest car. Even allowing for the fact that Checo probably won't be at the pointy end um, for whatever reason. Um, and Checo, actually, I realised, I should have said earlier, he has had shocking reliability. I mean, like he was mm. called in on lap eight at the start of the Italian Grand Prix because his car was on fire, <laughs> which, like, you know, we've all made a bad pit call in F1 manager and sent someone out on wets and whatnot. Um, uh, but, uh, yeah, they, they're, like, coming in on lap eight in order for your car to be switched to being on fire is, like, it's just not <laughs> the best thing. Um like strategically uh, and particularly not for like managing that for the rest of the race. Uh, so I don't think that Checo, I don't think Checo loves the current car, but but I don't think he's having as good a time with it uh, generally as, as Max is in, in terms of how it's working for him either. Um, but yeah, I think, I think that Mercedes are, yeah, they're, they're in this weird position where they are comfortably the third best team. And then there's a bit more debate about who's fourth, probably because McLaren are doing reasonably well or Norris is doing reasonably well. But the Alpines are, are kind of 
does the odd weekend where Alpina are there and the odd weekend where Alpina just not there? Like um, this weekend, for instance, um, Alpine, in principle, because of how bad McLaren were at Spa and how good Alpine were, uh, sort of like um, respectively, you would have thought that Alpine would be good at Monza and they just weren't. Um, so a lot of, yeah, I think Mercedes are, are in this comfortable, lonely third place. But yeah, uh, it's it's going to be odd when you look at it at the end of the year and try and work out kind of like who really had the chance to, to or, or actually like which teams progressed the most, I think will also be an interesting one because I, I don't know that Mercedes have progressed a huge amount. No, but I've just counted. There's only been four races this year where they haven't had one or two cars on the podium. So even when you're having a shocker, that's, Mm. that, that's, that's still the way to go. I think that midfield pack haven't gotten any closer to the front three, but they've just sort of condensed in the middle and Aston's just gone racing to the, to the back has been a bit weird um speaking of aston they made an announcement today they've signed formula two champion felipe drogovic to a development driver contract test driver contract which is interesting considering his championship was met with a great sigh of meh um which is a bit unfair to him he's had a very good year but it was he's not been particularly lauded even though apparently he's got about 10 million worth of backing which might be why he got signed up but thoughts um i i think drogovic has been very unfairly overlooked there's a sort of i'm not quite sure why there's this perception that the f2 field is particularly weak this year i really really don't think it is i think there have mm. been some weak years um and uh particularly actually 2020 was not a banger um uh for instance um but yeah the Overall, the F2 field is is very very strong at the moment. There's a, there's a lot of junior titles that are feeding into there, and and there's a decent number of because I know a lot of people complain about people who are in F2 for a long time, but actually having people who are there for sort of like three or four years is overall good for the the um, series because it means there are these experienced drivers that you can then benchmark other drivers against. Um, well, maybe not some of them except in terms of speed of getting to a race ban or whatever um uh but yeah the it is quite a strong field it is a competitive field it's also not quite been as bad as it has been in some years in terms of um uh merry-go-rounds with seats so there have actually been like there's a decent number of the drivers who've been in the same seat all season and there hasn't been too much ridiculous shuffling um which is always like a sign that the year is not not going ideally the reliability as always and has been the case since they switched from the gp2 car um is a problem and it just is a problem um there's also been a sort of spate of injuries which is faintly worrying um quite a lot of broken hands and and um uh ralph boschong's um facet syndrome um which is very serious uh but yeah the, the overall it's been a very strong year of of formula 2 i think and drogovic has not just slightly but wiped the floor with all of the f1 teams juniors he's made all five well four now as of yuri vips's uh racism incident um uh, all four Red Bull drivers, which includes people like Dennis Hauger, who was in, you know, a Prima, which is a front-running car, um, and and the reigning Formula Three champion, very well fated, but but F three F two has kind of made him look a bit average, um, which isn't necessarily his fault, but still, um, yeah, all four Red Bull juniors. Uh, he's beat the Williams juniors. He's beat the Alpine juniors. Um, he's beaten Teo Porcher, who I think everyone kind of assumed was probably set to be champion this year. 
um, but who, for for various reasons, hasn't been and actually had the most torrid weekend ever for the finale. Um, for what isn't actually the finale, because they they have to come back and have everyone swapped out for people who've won F three in Abu Dhabi and whatnot. But it's kind of done now. Um, the yeah, I, Drogovic is, I think, one of the most commanding champions. He he hasn't like fully stoffled Van Dorned it. But it's a very, very convincing championship run. Um, and, you know, he's one of the first to wrap it up before the final weekend for, for a little while. And mm. if I'm perfectly honest, although mathematically it took until the sprint race in Monza, it, it effectively been done for quite some time. And, and as you know, he came in with a uh, a 69 point lead. Um, at Monza, and and he only needed six points more to for it to have been wrapped up the previous weekend. Um, so, yeah, um, and to be honest, also if you look at the gaps, the gap between Porcher and the next one is so big that effectively, you know, the gap between Drogovic and third was over ninety points, um, which is is a big lead, um, and I've been really surprised that Formula One teams are just not paying any attention to him whatsoever. Um, I do think it's interesting that Aston have picked him up. Um, Of course, they have Alonso next year, but you have to assume that Alonso will probably retire at some point. Um, And I don't know. I think he's on a multi-year contract, I think he said. He did. Whenever I think of that, there's a terrible movie, Jay and Silent Bob go to Hollywood or whatever it's called. There's a scene with Wes Craven making a movie and he's just there counting his money in the chair. That's kind of what I think of when I think of Fernando Alonso at the moment. You know, he's doing a job, but he's literally just sort of ka his way to, to retirement at the moment. So I reckon he's around for two years. Yeah. And I mean, there is the question of, you know, how long Stroll wants to, to drive for a midfield team, like what's going on there. So, um, yeah, Aston is an interesting choice because because it it sort of you can sort of assume that it really only has one open seat at any given time. But hmm. I think conceivably it's it's possible that you know that Stroll, who certainly makes look at being a Formula One driver seem like a real bore, um, <laughs> that you know he he might move on to other things or something. Um, so yeah, I think Dragovic could be. Um, in with an opportunity there. I don't actually know how much backing he has. Um, he certainly never particularly struggled for funding in, in junior series. Um, although he actually nearly didn't do this year of F2. Although he he did say he had no idea really what he was going to do if he didn't. Um, he just wasn't really sure after the first two years whether, whether it was something that was going to work out. Um, and that that's quite yeah um interesting as a decision that you <laughs> that he had to make um it, it was it was an interesting call you know i'm just looking at the the f2 lineup here and it's yeah felipe's miles away logan's slowly closing in on teo um our man liam lawson friend of the show not had the best of not had the best of years, um, but it's. I, th- I think there's some there's some decent, decent, um, decent drivers, isn't there? I think Logan Sargent's starting to come into his own. Jack Doohan as well is doing pretty good. Um, and just to say, yeah, the 2020 crop wasn't terrible because I thought Callum Millett's had an incredible year over in IndyCar, considering he broke his hand at Indy and has has, has done very well. Um, yes, in, a, in an yeah. underfunded team. Uh, I mean, I mean, I would say I think the top, so Schumacher, Eilat, um, uh, and Zenoda, like the 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 top of that year, um, uh, for sure, was was not bad by any means, and and there were lots of drivers who, like for instance, Marcus Armstrong, who probably always should have done better in F two, but his car just blows up at the, like he looks at it and the engine fails, so. Um, uh, and he's moved around teams and I don't know why it's like that, but it is. Um, uh, so yeah, I, I, I don't want to sort of say that 2020 field was appallingly terrible, um, or, or to kind of 
take anything away from Schumacher as, as the champion, but further down the field was much, much weaker than I think the 2022 grid is overall. Right. Let's end this on a high because you always got to end a podcast on a, a bitchy argument. Sebastian made some interesting comments about Formula E last week and Lucas Degrassi took him to task for it, which I thought was, was I, I really liked Degrassi's response because it was really good. But this is your ballpark, Hazel. What did you think of the handbags at a thousand bases? Um, so I, I feel partially responsible for this um, because <laughs> I um, Lucas Degrassi follows me on Twitter and we're quite good friends and I feel I probably brought it to Lucas's attention um, uh, because I was just correcting the point. Um, so I, I, I actually thought that Sebastian's interview um, where he was talking about what he wanted to do after... Formula One um, was very interesting. It was a very odd question that the interviewer asked him, which was, would he want to be an ambassador for Formula E? Um, which, yeah, I mean, why would he? He's got nothing to do with it. He's not, you know, attached to a Formula E team. Why would he want an ambassadorial role for a series he's never raced in, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so his reaction was like, no. And, and, and he came out with this thing that um, isn't true about the the batteries all being charged from diesel generators. They're not. Um, they're, they're charged, or originally they were charged from uh, saltwater growing algae uh, that's turned into a sugary solution, and then you can run it through diesel generators, which I, I can only imagine that this is maybe where this comes from. Um, there's some variants on that that are still used, although I think um, Formula E broke up with Aquafuel, which was the original supplier. Um, and there's also like vegetable oil and, and, and waste oils that are used um, rather than diesel, it, it, which has been on occasion used. But um, normally Formula E either uses grid energy or or uses um, uh, supplementary generators that, that have fueled as sustainably as, as is realistic in each location. Um, and some of the reason they broke up with Aquafuel was because actually it turned out that transporting massive barrels of stuff around the world has a higher carbon toll than um, in some instances uh, than just sourcing something locally that makes more sense. So yeah, lots of lots of complications, but there is this perception in the F1 paddock and and kind of the the formula is not as green as it says it is. Um, that it's it, that there's lots of lies about you know the batteries um, and the way that they're made and the way that they're sourced and the way that they're disposed of. Funnily enough, we're not just throwing them into the sea. Um, and uh, there's yeah. It, it, what what he said came from an unfortunately uninformed point of view, um, mm. which I was quite surprised by because he tends not to to sort of make comment on things that he doesn't feel confident about. So, yeah, I, it, I know what it is because it's the things that people from the F1 paddock say about Formula E. So I guess he's been told it and he's never had a reason to interrogate it. Um and I'm not surprised that it wound up Lucas um, because he is an ambassador for Formula E um, and that, you know, naturally he got dunked on by loads of idiots. But I think um, some somewhat so Lucas on Twitter has two problems, one of which is that English is not his first or even his second language. Um and so when he's expressing himself in it, he isn't always as articulate as, as he would probably want to be. Um, but also uh, that he is quite emotional or can respond sort of quite emotionally to things. And he obviously felt quite insulted by this, by what a, Sebastian a Brazilian said. racing driver reacting emotionally, I'm sure. Well, yes, I mean, <laughs> oh, gosh. Um, uh, and yeah, he he sort of said that if Seb wasn't able to see the worth of Formula E, then then you had to question all this alleged environmental stuff that he was doing, um, and you know that he 
and Lucas is 100% correct here, um, that Seb has been endorsing sustainable fuels, um, but sustainable fuels and in particular e-fuels are massively energy consumptive, uh, consumptive. So to make any bit of fuel, I will wrap this up in a second, um, to make any bit of fuel, <laughs> you have to put more energy in than it will ultimately put out. And the reason that fossil fuels are so great is because the earth has put huge amounts of energy into it with pressure, with gravity, with all kinds of things over with heat um, and stuff over a very, very long time, over millions of years. And so we don't have to do that. Um, Whereas when you're making, when you're constructing fuel, whether it's out of um, ethanol or methanol um, and then adding hydrogen to turn it into a, a petrol structure, um, or whether it's um, actually doing it from the molecular level of captured carbon and, and um, hydrogen combined, uh, then you have to expend a lot of energy in order to do that. Um, and very arguably, that energy might well be better spent putting it directly into the battery of an electric car, even though the con- uh, construction energy required for an electric car's battery is about... 40 kilowatt hours of power for every kilowatt hour that's made in the battery um that can then be used loads and loads of times whereas you're always going to be running at a loss with the synthetic fuels so lucas is absolutely right he's he and he knows his stuff and he's not wrong um it's just that he didn't maybe say that in the most persuasive way i did like how he used the um the german federal um uh, energy commission's graph to prove his point about the uh, the e fuels. I thought that was that was a yes. that was a nice touch. If you if you're going to go after a German, use German stats. But there you go. I think that's that's enough to chat about for an evening. I've got to have my tea. Yes, sorry for going on so long. No, 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 that's fine. How, how was your aubergine curry? That sounded lovely. Or have you not? Um, well, I, have, I haven't eaten it yet, so oh. so I'm I'm also going to go off for my tea. <laughs> Super. What are you having for supper, Matt? This is a great way to end the podcast. Actually, find out whether it's having for tea. Oh, it's it's um, tandoori chicken, actually. Ooh. That um, my other half. Uh, yeah, yeah, and um, you know, homemade tarkadal, which um, which she makes and is justly very proud of. So uh, yeah, I'm going to go and have some of that in a bit. My, my dinner's a bit boring. I've, I've got a dodgy tummy, so I'm staying staying reasonably boring so there you go anyways thank you very much hazel it is always a pleasure please come back when we have more controversies to to dig into uh, yes no i'd be delighted is uh, thank you for having me again it's great and thank you matt as always oh you're welcome thanks for sticking around and listening to this episode of boundary of disaster please if you can like and subscribe leave us a review because that would be amazing it helps with all the algorithms and that means people can find us a little bit easier. Of course, if you can tell your friends as well, you never know, they might start listening to us as well, which would be ace. If you fancy supporting us, there's a Patreon page. The link is in the description. Also check out the other links. We've got a link tree there that goes to all of our socials, including the new TikTok, which Ellie has got up and running and the rest of us still don't know much about. So until next time, thank you so much.